Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. And welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Kat Arney, and with Chris Smith. Tick, tock, tick, tock. It is 60 years since the world's first atomic clock was created. But what actually is time? When did it begin? And how accurate is our timekeeping today? Plus, the science headlines from around the world, including scientists have solved the cause of ringing in the ears, or tinnitus. One of the earliest forms of life goes under the microscope. And what can your newborn's eyes reveal about its future behaviour? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Opiates, like morphine, are some of the most powerful and effective pain-killing drugs that are available. They're made using cultivated opium poppies, which have evolved naturally to produce these chemicals, probably as a way to fend off attacks from insects. But despite decades of study, scientists hadn't been able to unpick the biochemical production line controlled by cellular catalysts called enzymes that lead to the production of these morphine-like chemicals. One key part of the process remained obscure. But now, by studying poppy plants carrying genetic changes that prevented them from making morphine, York University's Ian Graham and his colleagues have found the missing piece of the puzzle. We've been studying opium poppies for a number of years in partnership with the pharmaceutical company GlaxoSmithKline. In fact, not a lot of people realise it, but they grow poppies for the production of morphine and codeine and a lot of people have had those drugs when they've been suffering from severe pain. I mean indeed they're some of the the most powerful and the most effective drugs that we have in our medicine chest. What was the question that you were asking here? The challenge for us has been that all of those enzymatic steps for synthesis of morphine and codeine have been described over the last 20 years except for this one important gateway step. And when I say gateway step, I mean now if you could think of a production line and uh, components coming down the production line, then they could go into making a a Volkswagen Polo or they could go into making a, a Volkswagen Sirocco. So this gateway step diverts the molecules down one route or the other. And so it's extremely important Because once we could understand that, then in the plant, we could influence 
the flux down one pathway into morphine or down another pathway into another molecule, in fact, called noscopine, which is an anti-cancer compound. Why has this step proved rather difficult to get to grips with in the past? The answer to that came with the discovery, in fact, because it turns out when we discovered this gene, which we call STOR, S-T-O-R-R, it's a fusion of two other genes. And, and that fusion event brought together two enzymes. What that allows to happen is that instead of two separate enzymes floating around the cell, you have the two enzymes together and there's more rapid channeling of the, the two reactions together. How did you discover that that's what had happened? We looked through a large population of plants, this is poppy plants, that are unable to make morphine. So they just were not making any morphine. The interesting thing was that they were accumulating another compound that we know goes into this gateway reaction that I talked about. So it's rather like if you had a worker on a conveyor belt and, and they went on strike, there'd be loads of the things that they would normally do as part of the production line would just build up behind where they were standing. And you were spotting, A, there was a build-up of these things, and B, you could therefore work out what the worker was doing, who was missing. Yes, exactly. So basically, with the when we saw there was an accumulation of this compound, then we thought hey, there's a real opportunity here to now discover what this gene actually is. And then we used various other tricks to identify what the gene was. Now you've got the gene, what is that telling you and what do you think you can do with it? So the gene is interesting in a number of ways because we're interested in developing poppy plants by using DNA markers. So we can breed plants that are making this compound called noscopine, which is an anti-cancer compound, rather than morphine. We can also look for plants that are making more morphine or more codeine. So it's a very valuable tool for plant molecular breeding. Looking at it from a different perspective, in recent years and months, we've seen people speculate and now say they're on the verge of genetically modifying things like yeast so that they could make yeast growing in effectively the same gear as you'd use to make homebrew in your living room and have it churning out morphine. Now you've made this discovery, does that mean that people have got the missing part of the puzzle to make their, their homebrew kit for morphine work? Yes, well, effectively, this discovery is the missing tool in the toolkit. It's inevitable now that in the not-too-distant future, the proof-of-concept objective will be making morphine in yeast from simple molecules such as sugars. Intriguing stuff, isn't it? That was Ian Graham. He's published that discovery this week in the journal Science. Around 500 million years ago, in a period of time called the Cambrian, the world was suddenly abuzz with diverse animal life for the first time in history. Huge varieties of body plants started to appear, after millions of years of animals no more complicated than pretty much seaweed. This period of time is key to understanding early animal evolution, and one of the best windows we have into it is through a fossil bed called the Burgess Shale. One of the most famous fossils discovered here is a strange alien-like creature called hallucigenia and it's always been something of a mystery to paleontologists. This week research from Cambridge University has flipped our understanding of this peculiar animal on its head quite literally. Georgia Mills went to visit Dr Martin Smith to meet hallucigenia and hear about its many secrets. 
Eleusinia was a sea creature. It would have lived in reasonably deep waters and it would have been surrounded by a vast range of diverse and weird creatures. So there are things like Anomalocaris, which looks like a cross between a lobster and a can opener. Opabinia, that looks like a shrimp that's swallowed a vacuum cleaner. Um, there are sort of squid-like things. There are fish-like things. There are sponges. There are seaweeds. In stark contrast to the seas of 20 million years earlier, where there was basically nothing much more complex than seaweed. And I see you have a little model of Hallucigenia here. Is this it? That's right. Yep, so we've got a, a small model of Hallucigenia. This is a cast of one of the fossils that we've been working with, and it's about a centimetre long or so. The fossil looks a bit like a hockey stick, but you know, as thin as a pin, it's really tiny. And it's got, you can just see seven pairs of long spines sticking out of its back, and it's got long, slender, tentacle-like legs dangling from the other side of its body. Looking at this, I think if I found this, I would think it was just a sort of scratch. It looks nothing like an animal. What did people make of this when they first discovered it? Well, when it was first discovered, I think it was sort of put to the back of the drawer as, what on earth is this? And it was formally described in the 1970s, quite a bit later. At that point, again, it was very hard to know what to make of it. So we could see both of the spines in each pair, but one side of the legs were actually still buried in the mud. And so the paleontologist describing the creature didn't recognise this and thought, OK, well, we've got pairs of spines, but we've only got one dangly thing associated with them. It must have been walking on the spines. The spines must have been its legs. And who knows what this sort of dangly thing was. Maybe it was a tentacle passing food to the head or something like that. People say, well, you can't walk on spines. They're stiff. They don't even bend. And so someone built a robot to show that you could walk on stiff, pointy spines. I think it would still have got stuck in the mud somehow. But it's a really bizarre reconstruction of an animal. And I think that's what led to its name, Hallucigenia. It's sort of dreamlike and otherworldly appearance. It was the 1990s when we realised that actually hallucinogenia was the wrong way up. And now what have you discovered? When we went back to hallucinogenia, we knew which way up it was. We still didn't really know which end was the head and which end was the tail. And Royal Ontario Museum crews have collected over the last 40 years dozens of new specimens. So we figured it was time to re-describe the animal from the ground up. So the first thing we did is we went looking at this big, bulbous, orb-like structure that's at one end of the body, and we said, well, is this really the head? It looks a little bit weird. It's a bit inconsistent. And we can actually show that it's got a different composition to the body tissue. So it's not actually part of the animal at all. And what we think it represents is decay fluids or gut contents that were squeezed out of the end of the organism as it was buried. So that's not the head at all. So we thought, OK, well, what's going on at the other end? Where is the, the actual head? And so my colleague, Jean Bernard, dug away at the rock that was covering that end of the organism, and we thought, OK, this is probably the head. It would be nice to prove it for sure. And a couple of specimens we looked at the microscope, we could see something that looked a little bit like eyes, but because it's so tiny, it's way less than a millimetre across, we couldn't really see any detail. So the next thing we did was we said, well, we've got to put these in an electron microscope. That lets us get down to thousands of a millimetre in resolution. And so we put the fossils in the electron microscope, and lo and behold, we saw not just a pair of eyes looking back at us, but underneath them there's this enormous sort of grin almost, a little circle of teeth below the eyes. And this was completely unexpected. We know that Hallucigenia's closest modern relatives are animals called the velvet worms. They live in rainforests. They've got very simple mouths, no teeth at all. And so to find teeth not just around the mouth of Hallucigenia, but also in the throat, we found in the throat of Hallucigenia there's lots of little needle-like teeth. This was a complete surprise to us. Hallucigenia lived 500 million years ago. Why should we care which way round it goes? 
hallucinogenia is, is really weird and it's really unexpected. And the point is that it's telling us something that we'd never know just looking at the animals that we can see today. And it's only through looking at fossils like hallucinogenia that we can understand how the modern groups of animals are related to one another and how they evolved in the first place and how they became complex and how quickly. So really hallucinogenia is a unique window into this really early and exciting period of evolution of life on Earth. So now we've got hallucinogenia well, first in the 90s it was put the right way up, and now you know which way round it goes. Is this it for hallucinogenia? Have we solved it, or is there anything more to find out? Well, I think it's fundamentally solved, at least. We kind of know what it was doing, but I definitely wouldn't say there's nothing more we'll find out. Hallucinogenia is full of surprises, and almost each time we go back to the fossil, we find something new. So who knows what's going to be next? One thing that's quite exciting is a lot of Cambrian fossils we're finding have nervous tissue in. So who knows? Maybe we'll find new fossils that show hallucinogenia's brain and its nerve cord, and that could tell us something really fundamentally new again about how it's related to modern groups and the origin of modern animal diversity. That was Martin Smith, and his paper about how to tell one end of hallucinogenia from the other was published in Nature this week. Now, in the news this week, climate has been a recurring theme. Dutch campaigners have won a court case that will order the government there to cut greenhouse gas emissions by at least 25% by 2020, while the EU's climate chief, Miguel Arias Cañete, has criticised the UK government's decision, meanwhile, to cut wind farm subsidies. But what can the world of technology offer to the climate change crisis? With us here is Peter Cowley. He's a technology entrepreneur and an investor. Peter, in a recent study, 63% of all pollutants in the air in London, using London as an example of a big city, they're attributable to transport. So therefore, transport is potentially a big polluter. What realistic alternatives might there be to the fossil fuels that most forms of transport currently rely on? Uh, yes. In fact, there's another uh, figure floating around that London is likely to be fined as much as 300 million euros a year for pollution, particularly in, in Oxford Street. So Fined? Fined. By so whom? this is by the EU. Gosh, that's uh, and, not and th- to this is home primarily that, is um, diesel fumes from buses and lorries. So do you want me to talk through what the alternatives are? So if you take some statistics, there are about 500 million cars worldwide. If you use batteries, which we hear about more and more, battery vehicles have been around for a very long time, if you remember the milk, milk floats. <laughs> and, and round about of those 500 million, there's about a million have been sold with batteries so far, of which uh, there's a Japanese manufacturer is, is the biggest. And, and some people would have heard of Tesla, which has about 10% of the, the market. American car company. Because they did yes. something quite radical last year, which was to announce that they were actually making a lot of their technology off patent so people could begin to work on it, couldn't they? Exactly. To yes. try to stimulate the market. Exactly, yeah. And they're also going to be building a very big plant to manufacture batteries which other people can use, including other car manufacturers. Is this going to make a big dent in the problem, though? If we take London's problem and the threat of the 300 million in fines, what sort of a difference could we make with electric cars? There's, there's a big issue with electric cars for a number of us who don't live in cities, which is called range anxiety, where people are worried about running out of power. And a typical car will be a couple of hundred miles, maybe 250 miles. Tesla are working on that on the basis of putting supercharges in around the place, of which we've got only a few in the UK so far, which you can half charge the car in about 20, 25 minutes. Compare that with filling your car with petrol, which takes five or six minutes, and it will give you another 500 miles. One alternative is hybrid, where you've got a petrol engine or a diesel engine and a battery. And of those, there are about 10 million have been sold worldwide, and 300,000 or so are plug-in. The fact is the figures speak for themselves. The numbers that you have cited for the entire world are a small fraction of the total number of vehicles just in this small island, Britain. 
So we've got a long way to go before we're in a position to actually be changing the impact we're making on the climate potentially, haven't we? Absolutely, yes. And what what pressures are going to be on that? When is oil going to run out at that point? Then renewables and therefore battery power will will come in. Other pressures come from reducing the amount of pollution. So it's going to be it's going to be policy, not price of the fuel that's going to make the difference. Well, I'm glad you brought up the policy word because I was thinking, well, if I was the mayor of London faced with a 300 million quid bill for my pollution problem, I would be thinking, well, should I invest some of what I'm going to lose in incentivising the industry. Correct. And they are doing that. There are, there are two manufacturers, uh, one in London, one outside London, that are working on a bus which is hybrid. This is uh, reducing the emissions and uh, reducing the consumption simultaneously. But that what is the bottleneck? Money. What's holding this up? Is it just battery technology? Is it just that range anxiety? Or is there something else fundamentally holding it up? Well, let's just work battery. The big problem with batteries is that although lots of things in our lives seem to be increasing in, in speed and reducing in size very rapidly, batteries are not. You're getting 5 to 8% increase in battery capability every year. So there's a big issue with batteries not getting there. But more strongly, it's just inertia in the system. It's the fact that the policies are not being pushed forward. So with your entrepreneurial slash investors hat on, what can we expect to see in the nearest timescales? Well, we didn't mention hydrogen much, but it won't, not much will happen there because the distribution of hydrogen, this is liquid hydrogen under massive pressure. So it will be in the hybrid, electric and hybrid. Um, electric, uh, it, it, they are more expensive. Um, it will take some time before uh, one can make a decision. I mean, my car, my hybrid car was more expensive than a, a, a diesel car. You know, it was probably about 30% more expensive. Why did I buy it? Because I'm an early adopter. Um, so, no, it, it isn't price that will push it. It's, it's, it's the environmental policy decisions by governments. Let's hope so. Peter, thank you very much. Peter Cowley, he's a technology entrepreneur and an investor. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. The Space Boffins podcast is an Eileen Collins special, an interview with the pioneering test pilot who became an astronaut and the first female commander of NASA's space shuttle. She explains what it's like to fly the shuttle and to pilot the first mission after the Columbia shuttle exploded. So join me, Sue Nelson, with Eileen Collins on the latest Space Boffins podcast in partnership with Naked Scientists. You are listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Kat Arney, and also with Chris Smith. Now, have you ever suffered from tinnitus, that annoying ringing in your ears? You might get it after a very loud gig. If you do, you can tweet us at Naked Scientist because we'll have news for you later. Also, if you want to follow up on any of the stories that we've been reporting on here on The Naked Scientist, then you can find the links to the papers and the transcripts of the interviews all on our website at nakedscientists.com. Newborn babies might not really seem to do much, maybe except eat, sleep, cry and generally make a mess from both ends. Yet their shiny little eyes might be giving away some clues as to how they'll behave when they grow up, according to new research led by Angelica Ronald at Birkbeck University of London. I caught up with her to get the lowdown from the nursery. We know as adults that we all differ between one another and that, that's a you know, healthy variation. Someone might be a racing car driver because they've got really quick responses and very fast visual attention. Someone else might choose to work in a museum restoring paintings and really having a sort of long attention span. And you know, that's all healthy variation between people. We don't know anything really about where that variation comes from earlier on in development. And so we were looking at newborns to see if they differed between one another in terms of their visual attention. And we didn't know what we would find because there hadn't been any studies like this. 
Tell me a bit more about the study and the participants in your study. Yeah, so we worked with a researcher in in northern Italy who has expertise in understanding and and studying newborns. And it was based in a hospital there uh, of just uh, typical mums having their babies, healthy babies, and they would come into a room next door to where the babies were born and have a look at some objects on a screen, so very non-invasive. And we got about 80 babies who who did that, who participated in that way, and then we, we followed them up. Uh, my researcher actually had a motorbike and he s- cycled around northern Italy visiting these families who were very good natured and took part in this research. And we asked the parents about the children's behaviour once they'd grown up. One was a uh, level of activity. So some children, as we know, are very, very active and some are less active. And there's lots of variation between children. Also, we were interested in something called surgency, which relates to children being quite impulsive, quite extrovert, outgoing. And we were also are interested in typical types of behaviour problems like having difficulties with your peers, um, having conduct problems and so on. And so what did you find? Is there a sign when a baby is just a couple of days old about what they're going to become? Well, it's not predictive. It's not a one-to-one mapping. We're not going to start telling mothers what their babies will be like. But there was a significant relationship between how babies looked at objects and their behaviour later on. It didn't explain all of their behaviour later on, but it was one of the like little risk factors, as it were, or one type of way of predicting children's behaviour. And what we found was the the newborns who were spending longer looking at any particular object, they had fewer behaviour problems and they were less active and less extrovert. Whereas the babies who on average tended to flit around the screen were likely to be a bit more active and a bit more extrovert, but also have a few more behaviour problems. So there's pluses and minuses on both sides. Would there be any kind of interventions or any benefit to actually identifying children in this way? Well, our study is really very the first of its kind to look at the links between differences in newborns' attention and later behaviour problems. So we definitely need a lot more research. There is some evidence that for some children who might be at risk of developmental conditions like autism and ADHD, the earlier the intervention, the better. But we don't know whether it's appropriate to intervene at the point of being a newborn. And so um, for most children, this is this study is just about normal variation the wealth of rich individual differences between people and children and babies. I'm sure many of our listeners might have babies or might be expecting a newborn. Is this the kind of thing that they'll be scrutinising their baby for and saying, oh, it's going to be like this, it's going to be like that? I don't expect that this is something one can observe in a in a newborn oneself. Um, it was a case of using video-coded data and then measuring that data it's not something that sort of one can easily see with the naked eye. In fact, I'm expecting a baby as well, and I'm not planning to uh, pick apart its visual attention when it when it's born at all. I'm just going to enjoy enjoy my new baby. And very best of luck with your new arrival. That's Angelica Ronald from Birkbeck University, and her work was published this week in the journal Nature Scientific Reports. I bet she will. Do you honestly think that she's going to think oh, I won't look at my baby's kind of parameters I, on my own test? I, I bet she will. She might. I yeah, she will. I reckon. Now, as many as one person in every four is affected by tinnitus. This is a phantom ringing or mechanical sound experience that occurs in the absence of any real sound going into the ears. And it often happens in people who have prior damage to their hearing. So why does it happen? Richard Salvi. The original theories were tinnitus originates from abnormal activity in your inner ear that's been damaged. 
However, studies have been done where the auditory nerve that connects the ear to the brain, when that's severed because of a surgical intervention, the tinnitus persists. And this led people to believe that tinnitus might actually be generated somewhere in the central nervous system. And how have you sought to find out which of those two it is with these experiments? If you take a really, really high dose of aspirin, it will induce this phantom sound. So we induce that in animals. We train the animal initially to press the right bar under two sound conditions. When they hear quiet or when they hear an amplitude modulated noise, a noise that would sound like or press the left bar if they hear just a steady sound. After the animals learn that task, then we induce tinnitus by giving them a high dose of aspirin. And on the quiet trials, if they have tinnitus, they no longer hear quiet and they shift their behavior from the right bar to the left bar, which is associated with a steady sound. So they're tricked into believing quiet is steady sound. And how does that help us to understand physically and physiologically what tinnitus is? Once we know that the animals are perceiving this phantom sound, then we can do electrophysiological studies. We can put electrodes into different parts of the auditory brain or other non-auditory pathways and see what's happening to the neural activity, how it's changed. What we found is parts of the central auditory pathway became very hyperactive when we played a sound to them, whereas their inner ears became less active. So it looked like the brain was compensating for the peripheral hearing loss. It's rather like if I've got my radio tuned in and there's a little bit of static or interference in the background and the conversation is rather quiet, I turn up the radio to hear better but there's still an inherent hiss there which will become louder and that's what's happening in these animals. That's exactly the analogy that I use to explain this. By turning up the volume control you hear all the static background in your radio station. And if one explores the auditory system when these processes are happening, is it just a discrete zone that's affected or do other brain regions affect the process too so so for instance is someone sensitive to sound when they're feeling emotionally sensitive for example yes in our study we found not only the auditory parts of the brain became hyperactive but an area called the amygdala that assigns emotional significance to sound a second area that became activated was the reticular formation this is an arousal area that gets you excited and a third area was the hippocampus. This is an area that's involved in spatial navigation. We think all of this network might play an important role in tinnitus and hyperacusis. Does this give us any insights then into how we can manage tinnitus better? Well, there's ways of mitigating it. One of the most effective ways is if somebody's completely deaf and has tinnitus, you can put in a prosthetic device called a cochlear implant which electrically stimulates the stump of the auditory nerve. And when you turn the cochlear implant on and put information back into the central auditory nervous system, in about 90% of the people, the tinnitus disappears. 
What about people who are the reverse of deaf? Because there are people who hear sounds and they experience them, perceive them, as distractingly loud. You're describing a phenomena we refer to as hyperacusis. So if you turn up the central gain mechanism, a really weak signal now that comes in from the periphery and reaches the central nervous system, if you've got your volume control turned up too, too high, what's going to happen? Sounds will be sounds super loud to you. So we think this central gain hypothesis is a way of explaining both tinnitus and hyperacusis. Richard Salvi from the University of Buffalo describing the work that he's just published in the journal eLife. And now on to the main part of our show, time. June is a timely month to be celebrating this because not only does it mark 60 years since the first atomic clock was built, revolutionising timekeeping around the world, but also we'll be gaining a whole second on the 30th of June. So, Chris, what are you going to be spending your precious extra second doing? Uh, thinking up what to do with my extra second, I think. <laughs> well, the, the batteries in my watch have run down, so I'm probably just going to miss it anyway. Um, so if you can think of things to do with your extra leap second, other than, of course, listening to more podcasts from the Naked Scientists, you could tweet us at Naked Scientists, or you can find us on Facebook and tell us what you're going to be doing. But before we get to leap seconds and atomic clocks, we need to go back a bit. In fact, back to the beginning of time. Or is there such a thing? Greg Jackson took this cosmic quandary to Cambridge University philosopher Hugh Price. Many cosmologists now think that there is. This view goes back to the discovery that the universe is expanding, discovery made in the 1920s. Logical implication of that is that there must have been a time when it was at minimum size, and that's what we now think of as the Big Bang. And on most views, that's the beginning of time. There's literally nothing before that. Basically, with the Big Bang, time was created. Time didn't exist before the Big Bang because, well, the Big Bang created time. Armed with the best physics in the 20th century, Albert Einstein came to a very similar conclusion with his theory of relativity, which states that time isn't quite the same everywhere. Planet Earth's hefty mass warps time. It's why the clocks on orbiting satellites run slightly slower and why astronauts on the International Space Station return having aged slightly less. Although not by much, it must be said. That's an aside, but the big picture here is that space and time is warped by mass. And because all the mass in the universe would have been contained in something smaller than an atom, it would have brought time to a standstill. Ergo, the beginning of time is the Big Bang. Or is it? Well, there are cosmologists who think that the Big Bang wasn't really the beginning. What happened was that instead of collapsing like that, the matter bounced. And so people talk about the Big Bounce rather than the Big Bang. It's a, it's a, it's a cycle of bounces and collapses. So then that means time is infinite and there is no beginning of time if it's continually contracting and expanding, no? Yeah, exactly. The message I'm taking away is either you believe in the Big Bang and that before the singularity there was no such thing as time, but that massive expansion, that is when time was created, or you believe in the Big Bounce 
and that means time is infinite and there is no beginning of time. Yeah, I think those are the, the, the two basic options. But of course, one of the nice things about science in general and physics in particular is that it has a, a delightful way of coming up with new options. So we can't be absolutely sure that something else won't come along. Time is infinite then, or it begins with the Big Bang. Simple. But where do cosmologists sit? Is there any evidence to support either theory? Roberto Trotto from Imperial College London gave me the lowdown. Up first was the Big Bounce. This picture is actually in doubt today because we now know that our universe is not going to recollapse. It is actually going to expand forever. Sorry, how do we know that our universe isn't going to recollapse? And, and that's, that's, a, that's because of dark energy. 70% of our universe is made of a, an unknown type of force or energy that we call dark energy, uh, whose main impact on the universe is to make the expansion of the universe accelerate with time. So not only the universe is growing with time today, it's growing at an ever-accelerating speed. And it will not be a big crunch that will end our universe. The end will be a state of darkness where all the matter will have been sucked into black holes. A slightly scary space. Sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie. <laughs> yes, but it's, it's about 200 billion years in the future, so there is nothing to worry about. <laughs> so that theory's in doubt. What other theories might there be that have more support? Some ideas are rather different. They postulate the existence of parallel universes, effectively. So our universe is made of uh, three space dimensions and one time dimension. So it's a four-dimensional universe. But what if there were additional dimensions that we cannot actually penetrate ourselves? Five-dimensional spaces and universes being sucked into black holes. This all sounds a little mind-boggling to me. But fortunately, Roberto had some lasagna to hand to show me how parallel universes could work. Okay. Let's give our parallel universes four minutes. So whilst this is quickly heating up... This is to demonstrate the various parallel universes. You've got layers of vegetable, because this is a vegetarian lasagna, I noticed. And then you've got the layers of pasta and cheese. So what signifies what here? The layers of pasta are going to symbolise and represent different parallel universes, separated by something, which in this case is the vegetable filling. You'll have other layers, which are just universes, just like us, but they are separated from us across a fifth dimension. And that, that's the dimension where the stuffing resides. Mmm, oops. So now we're going to cut the lasagna in the middle to reveal nicely our parallel universes. Let's see. Ah, yes, we can see there are about four or five parallel universes in it. And now the idea is that if we have gravity leaking through the two lasagna layers, the two pasta layers will be smashed together. They will be attracted one to the other. And when they hit like this, they're going to splash all the sauce out. And this is going to be the Big Bang, effectively. If this theory is correct, it means not only are there an infinite number of universes, but also time too is infinite. But that's a big if. Will we ever know for sure? It's, it's very difficult to say. Um, 
I think it's actually quite impressive to be able to say that we can now reconstruct with a high degree of fidelity the history of the universe from today, 13.7 billion years after the Big Bang, to the very beginning, some 10 to the minus 32 seconds after the Big Bang. All that remains to be tested is this tiny sliver of time, 10 to the minus 32 seconds after the Big Bang. And so in a sense, the job of scientists at the forefront of research is always that of pushing back the limit of the unknown. And so now we are really hitting the very hard, very deep, very fundamental questions. What existed before the Big Bang? Well, it's still an open question. Perhaps nothing. Perhaps another universe. Or perhaps a different version of our own. Perhaps even a sea of universes. This is one problem that won't stay dead. In the decades following Einstein's death, the advent of quantum physics has resurrected questions about the pre-Big Bang universe. And no doubt, with many more additional discoveries to be made in the next century, our ideas may well be very different in the decades to come. Greg Jackson with Imperial College's Roberto Trotter and before that Cambridge University's Hugh Price. Some several billion years after the Big Bang, lasagnas notwithstanding, humans came along and began measuring time, at first with sticks, shadows and sunlight, and eventually with our own wristwatches. But how did we get from sundials to atomic clocks? We're joined now by Alexi Baker from Cambridge University for a brief history of timekeeping. Hi, Alexi. Hi, thank you for having me on the show. Cool. So when did we first start to measure time? Well, at its most basic level, it's probably gone back hundreds of thousands of years because, of course, humans were perceiving sunrise and sunset, the changing of the seasons. But at least in more recent millennia, also things like the equinoxes and the solstices and the movement of bright stars and planets like Mars and Venus. But um, in terms of building implements, tools to measure time, that's gone back at least four, if not more, thousand years. So what do we know about the very first ways that humans started to measure time? And what sort of divisions of time were they trying to keep track of? Well, at the most basic level, there could be the burning of the measured burning of incense or candles, materials like that. And um, we also see ancient monuments and buildings aligned to cyclical astronomical events, things like that. But in terms of what we think of as timekeepers, it was really sundials and water clocks and hourglasses, which were the earliest appearances. When do we start to see the first sundials and and these water clocks? What's going on there? It's mostly within the past 3,000 years in places like ancient Egypt or Mesopotamia, China, the ancient Arabic world. And what's a water clock? Tell me, tell me about this. How did that work? Well, a water clock at its most basic form is just the measured pouring of water from one vessel into another. But they could be made a lot more complicated. Even, you know, in ancient Greece and ancient Egypt, they were already starting to add gears and escapements and things we associate with modern technology. When did people start feeling this need to measure time so precisely, rather than just going, oh, the sun's up, let's go out and do a bit of farming? Well, initially, it was because of activities like astronomical observing and navigation because of the association of longitude and time. But the time when it really became widespread across society was the 19th century because of the advent of the railroads and steam power and electricity and mass production and things like that. So trains certainly not waiting for your sundial to roughly tell you no. kind of the trains going now-ish. It was also the first time that they wanted to synchronize time across large geographical areas. That was a new sort of development. And 
how then did we see these clocks starting to change and moving towards, for example, the, the kind of clocks we have today? Well, in terms of society at large, it really wasn't until the 1800s that it starts to move towards our modern clocks, because until then, most people couldn't even afford any sort of timekeeper except for like an hourglass. So in the 1800s, you start to get more mass production and more activities such as factory work and steam powered and electrical work and the spread of the railroads demanding more precise time. So that's really when timekeepers spread across society and also start becoming more precise from our perspective. And speaking of time, the studio clock tells me that unfortunately we've run out of time to talk about that. But thanks very much. That's Alexa Baker from Cambridge University. The chicken has changed hugely in the last 50 years. The chicken of the future will be more resistant to a lot of different diseases. I think that's going to be one of the big targets. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we take a look at how breeders are improving the food on our plates, from GM chickens and more efficient dairy cows to re-engineered wheat, plus Viagra for malaria and an Italian-flavoured gene of the month. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com genetics. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arnian. This week, we're talking about the birth of atomic time, which happened 60 years ago this month. But it wasn't an easy ride. Throughout human history, timekeeping has been based on the rotation of the Earth. But the Earth's orbit is irregular. It's kind of wonky. Its rotation is gradually slowing, so the day is steadily lengthening. 60 years ago, this posed a pretty big problem in the world of timekeeping. The length of a second kept on changing. It was imperative to find an accurate way of keeping time, and the solution was the atomic clock. In 1955, Englishman Louis Essen got there first. Greg Jackson spoke to his relative and biographer, Ray Essen. Louis Essen was a quiet and unassuming physicist who worked on the measurement of time for 40 years. He's the man who's most remembered as building the first atomic clock. And one national newspaper called him a rebel at one stage. A rebel? That's right, yes. He was um, not always conventional. Um, One of his first successes was to um, see that there was an error in the speed of light, which during the Second World War was essential for any distance measurement, um, particularly that used in radar. And it was only in the Korean War did the Americans um, adopt Essen's value of the speed of light and so correct their own equipment and gave a much more accurate radar. A remarkable man then in many ways, for not only his radio navigation system, but also for the atomic clock. Tell me a bit more about the atomic clock. How did he come to, I don't know, build it, so to speak? The idea for atomic clock came initially from America, um, just after the Second World War. Essen had been doing similar work in the UK, and so a number of scientists invited him to America in 1949 um, to look at the work they'd been doing. And they demonstrated a prototype atomic clock. But quite frankly, it wasn't accurate. But nevertheless, Essen was really excited by the prospect. So we had a sort of race developing, where the Americans on the one hand had a lot of money that they were throwing at it, Essen, meanwhile, he wasn't very well funded at all in his research, uh, but nevertheless, he came up with the idea. 
Whilst in America they were using ammonia, Louis was using cesium. And what's interesting about cesium atoms is that if you blast them with microwaves, they resonate at a very precise rate. 9.2 billion times a second. Louis Essen's atomic clock essentially was able to strip off individual atoms by heating the cesium up to 100 degrees, firing them down an airless tube and blasting them with microwaves and then detect this bouncing. One, two, three, four, five, six, 9.2 billion. And every time it counted to that, it went tick, a second had passed. Unlike the pendulum or the quartz clocks of the time, the rate at which cesium atoms resonate is constant, whereas pendulums and quartz clocks are affected by changes in temperature, gravity, dips in air pressure. So Louis's clock was much more accurate. By a factor of 10, losing or adding a second every 300 years as opposed to every week. But how did Louis do this, especially when the odds were stacked against him? Many of the best physicists in America came from um, academic backgrounds and they were interested in purely devising something that, that could prove or disprove Einstein's relativity theory. That um, They weren't, in the early days, interested in clockmaking, just something um, with a, a regular um, frequency. Um, it, it was Essen that saw the practical application of this and the need to... Um, redefine the, the second of time. And his definition of the second still survives today? It does. Um, it took him two years to build the atomic clock. And then after that, the next 12 years to get acceptance of a new definition of the second, based not on astronomical cycles, but based on the heartbeat of the cesium atom. You must feel very proud. Yes, he was a quiet, unassuming man. He, he rarely talked about his work, but um, deep down he's changed the lives of many of us uh, in a way that would be unimaginable back in the 1950s. A remarkable man indeed, Ray Essen there, and his biography about his father-in-law is called The Birth of Atomic Time. The first atomic clock revolutionised how we tell the time, and even today our clocks are modelled on Louis Essen's creation. But since then, they've dramatically improved in accuracy. In fact, now only once in every 160 million years will these clocks gain or lose the odd second. So if they're so accurate, why do we need to keep adding a leap second to our atomic clocks? Well, Peter Wibbley is from the National Physical Laboratory. He's with us. Hello, Peter. Hello, Chris. First of all, let's look at the atomic clocks we have today. How do they differ from what Louis Essen invented? Well, the clocks we use today, the primary standards that we still use to measure the second, are still based on cesium atoms, but they're rather different to the uh, type of clock that Essen built. In Essen's clock, we had an oven forming a beam of cesium atoms which shoot through the microwave enclosure. In today's clocks, we use lasers to slow down cesium atoms from a vapour form a cloud of slowly moving cesium atoms and then we use the lasers to throw that cloud upwards through the microwave enclosure. Uh, the atoms then carry on rising and fall back under gravity through the cavity a second time and that gives a much longer measurement time, a much longer interaction between the atoms and the microwaves of around half a second and this longer interaction gives us a much more precise measurement of the frequency and therefore a more stable clock. And it's that opportunity to engage with them for longer, meaning that we make a more accurate and more precise measurement of their state? 
That's right. The longer time you have to make a measurement, then the more precisely you can measure an energy or a frequency in this case. Why do we need amazingly good clocks like this? Because one in 160 million years, as in one second being added or taken away every 160 million years, do we really need that level of accuracy and precision? There's certainly applications that would benefit hugely from these new types of clock. And there's a lot of work going on around the world to develop these optical clocks which will surpass the cesium clocks in their performance. Now, if these clocks are so accurate and precise, why do we have all this problem with leap seconds then? Why do we need to add these seconds periodically? This is the, what, 26th leap second, isn't it, now, this year? That's right, 26th since 1972 when they were first introduced. And the reason we need them is that, in fact, the Earth is not a very good timekeeper. It speeds up and slows down unpredictably. And over time, we find that our very precise time based on atomic clocks slowly diverges from the time based on the Earth's rotation, from mean solar time. And to keep the two in step, we have to occasionally put a one-second step into the atomic timescale just to let the Earth catch up with the atomic clocks. And this is called a leap second. Ah, right, so there's nothing wrong with our timekeeping apparatus. It's that our planet can't keep time properly. The Earth, in fact, is not a very good timekeeper. It's a million times poorer than the cesium fountains at keeping time. What do people think internationally about the concept of the leap second? Because does it really make a very big difference? That's an interesting question, and there's been a big debate going on now for around 15 years as to whether we really do need leap seconds. Should we just base our time purely on atomic clocks and just break the link with the Earth's rotation? Uh, there's no agreement internationally. Some countries favour ending leap seconds because they do cause problems. Uh, some software in particular has great difficulty handling leap seconds, and the simplest solution is simply to end them. But other countries say it's important to maintain the traditional link between timekeeping and the Earth's rotation, and are arguing we should keep leap seconds at least until we understand much better the long-term consequences of ending them. So where do you sit in the argument? Well, I'm part of the UK's delegation at this grand meeting that will discuss the issue in November this year. Um, so it's my job to argue the UK's position. But from a personal point of view, I don't have any strong uh, sympathies one way or the other. They're both very good arguments. And uh, the problem is there's no compromise position. Um, you either keep leap seconds or you end them. And whatever happens, it's going to be very interesting. And the UK's for keeping it? The UK government's considered the issue, and its view is that we should maintain this traditional link between our timekeeping and the Earth's rotation. And if we do decide to go with the counter-argument and we ditch the leap second, what might be the consequence? In the short term, not a great deal. The divergence between our atomic time and the Earth's rotation would slowly accumulate, but it would take maybe 100 years to reach one-minute difference and maybe a 1,000 years to build up to a one-hour difference. So within a normal lifetime, we wouldn't notice a huge difference. But over the longer term, the rate of divergence increases more and more. And so we have to do something to correct th this uh, difference between atomic time and Earth time, and, and there's no real agreement at the moment as to how that should be done. And the UK government is certainly arguing that we should understand the long-term consequences better before we make such a fundamental change. So anyone contemplating living for a thousand years or so, this might be an issue for you, so set your alarm clock accordingly. That was Peter Wibbley. He's from the National Physical Laboratory. That nearly wraps up the programme. Thank you very much to our other studio guests this week, Peter Cowley and Alexi Baker. And finally, Tom Crawford's put Helen's question under the magnifying glass in our question of the week. 
The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week. Brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation. Supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. Why are fingerprints unique? The movies say that if your fingerprints are found at the scene of the crime, you're guilty. But does this notion hold up in the real world? Forensic scientist Professor Neve Nick Daid put me through my paces at our very own virtual crime scene, where, would you believe it, the murderer has left his fingerprints on the candlestick in the dining room. I guess the first thing we need to know is whether fingerprints are actually unique. In forensic science, we're actually moving away from the notion that fingerprints can be considered as unique. And instead, we talk about the comparison between fingerprints and finger marks. Fingerprints are the records that are taken directly from a person's finger by law enforcement. And finger marks are what we recover from crime scenes. I see. So what I found is actually a finger mark, not a fingerprint. Yes, that's exactly right. To find evidence that our culprit may have been at the scene, we would need to compare the finger mark taken from the crime scene with a database of fingerprints that contain the fingerprints of our culprit. And what telltale signs are we looking for? Well, there are a range of characteristic patterns, which are called friction-ridge patterns in a fingerprint, which can be identified and used to compare fingerprints with finger marks. The most common overarching features are called whirls, loops and arches. And fingerprint examiners will also look for other features, for example, where these ridges may divide. OK, that certainly seems like a lot of variation to be packed into a fingertip. We've had a question from Stephen on Facebook, who wants to know whether the same applies to toe prints. Yes, there are also ridge patterns on the palms of your hand and on your toes. So criminals had better make sure to wear shoes as well as gloves to avoid being caught. But why do we have toe and finger marks in the first place? Listener Akalesh thought it was due to the different genetic origins of each individual, while Teo thought it might be influenced by the place in which we are born, or perhaps even the chemical makeup of the soil. David said fingerprints are unique simply so that we can use our iPhones. Well, fingerprints are developed in the womb. They begin to develop about the 10th week of pregnancy and are largely complete by around the end of the fourth month. The print is determined by the relationship between the epidermis, which is the outer skin layer, and the underlying layer of skin called the dermis. And it is thought to be influenced by factors such as blood pressure, the oxygen levels in the blood, both maternal and fetal, the position adopted in the womb by the fetus, the touching of fingers onto the sac and amniotic fluid, nutrition of the mother, hormone levels. It's a long list then. It certainly is. What it does mean, though, is that fingerprints are different on every finger of your hand, they differ between your hands, and that fingerprints of identical twins are different from each other. So identical twins aren't really identical? Yes, that's right. There you have it, Helen. Thanks for helping to solve this mystery, Neve. I'll see if I can track down our suspect. Next time, we're drilling into John's question. What is the most expensive element in the world? It's got to be gold, right? If you think you know the answer, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or join in the debate on the forum. That's thenakedscientist.com slash forum. And that really is all we have time for this week. Thank you very much to Greer Jackson for production. And join us next time when we'll be donning our body armour and heading out onto the battlefield to discover how explosives work and how best to defend ourselves against them. 
That's The Naked Scientist, next week looking at the science of warfare. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University, is supported by the EPSRC, the SDFC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith, and thank you very much at home for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at atlassian.com slash teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts.